Well, as you settle into your seat there, I want to introduce our speaker for today. Our speaker for today will be Dr. Sam Shaw and his wife, Ruthie, or as he likes to go by, Pastor Sam, or maybe even just simply Sam, he told me. I, I'm sorry, Sam, I can't think of, I can't help but whenever I say Sam, I think of the Dr. Seuss book I would read to my granddaughter very often, Sam I Am. And he was trying to convince him, do you like green eggs and ham? I don't know why I came up with that, but anyway. Um, Pastor Sam is here representing IPM. IPM is International, or inter, sorry, Interim Pastor Ministries. And hopefully you got a letter in the mail this week, or you've read the emails, or you've read leading up to this Sunday that Pastor Sam is here to share with us what uh, Interim Pastor Ministries does. He's on here, he's here on behalf of them. Sam has over 40 years of vocational ministry. Uh, he has degrees from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's pastored in five different states, anywhere from churches from 115 all the way up to 5,000. So wide variety of experience there. Before that, he was a missionary, uh, Spanish-speaking countries in Central America and uh, the Dominican Republic. Um, I'm sure he's going to tell us more about his wife and his kids here in just a little bit, but they uh, have four wonderful children that live all over the place. Uh, Sam says, my spiritual gifts are preaching, teaching, leadership, and faith. I love the Lord, his word, his people, and those outside the faith. I speak Spanish and love Mexican food, which I assured him we're going to have a variety of here in Longview. And my passion is increasing the effectiveness of the local church by, give, by loving, equipping, and deploying laypersons in advancing the kingdom of God. And in the short time that I've got to uh, talk to Sam and, and to meet him and to hear his heart more, the more I'm convinced that, like the picture earlier, he is a, a clear reflection of, uh, of God. So I introduce to you Dr. Sam Shaw. Thanks, Mike. Would you pray with me, please? Holy Spirit, we ask you to come and bear witness to the word, to the glory of the Father. Feed us your people. Call us to your purposes. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Boy, it is so good to be with you, and uh, it's, been a, uh, it's been a wonderful experience the last few days to meet some of your leadership and uh, just kind of hear their hearts, what's going on in their souls and their minds. Can I introduce my wife? She's, um, she probably won't like this, but I'm going to ask her to stand. Would you, sweetheart, and just let us say hi. If you have a Bible, you're in a series on the Lord's Prayer, so go to Matthew 6, Matthew chapter 6. Now, like many of you, I've had the opportunity to travel to a good number of uh, places and, and countries, and everywhere I've ever been, people pray. Just instinctive. Buddhists pray. Hindus pray. Muslims pray. Christians pray. Animist peoples, people out in the bush, in the jungle, pray, because we're created to pray. Just a common It's a common experience for dads to pray on Christmas Eve, one o'clock in the morning. You've got that box that says, easily assembled. And you pray and say, oh God, 
That's a prayer. Not a very good prayer, but it's a prayer. Um, a few years ago, I was up in the Himalayas and in India, and we had just left this little town. We were in a Jeep, and we drove past, just outside of town, and we saw a motorcycle on the side of the road. The tires were still spinning, and there was a young woman who was sitting there on the ground just days. We stopped our car. I was with a doctor, and we both got out and uh, learned she was British. She had rented this motorcycle, had a wreck, skidded, and her ankle had snapped, and the bone was sticking out of the side of her leg. And my doctor friend knelt beside her, and he said, I, I don't have any tools. I, I, I don't know what I could do. And I knelt the other side, and I said, I, I'm a Christian pastor. Can I pray for you? And she said, I'm an atheist. And I said, may I pray for you? And she said, please. Most people in the world have never had anybody pray for them in their, with their name. We pray. It's just kind of instinctive. And I'll make a confession to you right up front. I feel guilty every time I preach on prayer. And I sometimes I wonder if lightning shouldn't strike because I, pre I, I pray so poorly. And I'm not the only one. I think we did a hand raise, did a mass confession here. I think everyone in this room would say, I'm not satisfied with my prayer life. I've never met a believer who said, well, thanks for this series on prayer, but um, I, I don't need any help. Been there, done that, got the coffee cup and the t-shirt. I'm fine with prayer. Never met it. We all feel kind of inadequate. So why do we pray? I'll tell you one reason. Because we need the power of God. We need God's power. Our needs are too great. Our lives are too short. Our sins are too strong, and the world is too broken for anything but the power of God. And we need it. The American church is marginalized, impotent, largely, and we can make our plans and plan our programs and do church, but we are powerless because we're prayerless. We don't pray. And I'm so glad you're, you're learning to pray. Because you're going through the Lord's Prayer. How do you learn to pray? How do you learn anything? How, how do you learn to lift weights or do ballet or learn a computer skill? How do you, you get a teacher. You get a mentor. You get a, a coach or a guide. And what you're doing is you're allowing Jesus himself, who's the greatest prayer who ever lived, to mentor you, guide you, coach you in how to pray step by step. The secret of his extraordinary life was his prayer life. And he's coaching us in the Lord's Prayer. He's willing to teach us if we're willing to listen. So we're going to read the Lord's Prayer in just a moment. And uh, before we read it, let me just, I don't know your church background, but I grew up in, in, in churches where sometimes we did congregational readings like we did this morning, and it was awful. It was terrible. It's like we had these rules. Nobody ever talked about these rules, but we had these rules. Rules number one, read in a monotone without any hint of emotion. <laughs> Rule number two, keep your mind vacant. Don't actually think about what you're reading. And we would go so slow. It was like we were reading the phone book. Remember the phone book? If an emergency announcement was to be made, it was flashed on the screen, we'd read it together like this, buildings on fire. We must run for our lives. You did such a great job earlier. 
This is from the lips of Jesus and is meant to be read or prayed congregationally because it begins with our Father, not my Father. So would you stand, please? Get your mind engaged. Let's read the Lord's Prayer. Read out with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. And that's a remarkable prayer. I can't think of anything it doesn't include. Our fears, our anxieties, hopes for the future, God's plan for our life. I mean, it covers just about everything, but there's a problem. Oh, and by the way, my wife and I have done this little experiment this, this last week. We've assigned a portion of the Lord's Prayer to, to every day. So Monday we prayed, uh, we prayed, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Tuesday we prayed, Your kingdom come. Wednesday, we prayed, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thursday, we prayed, give us this day our daily bread. Friday, we prayed, forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors. Yesterday, we prayed, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So today, we're going to look at that last doxology. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And we've got a problem. Because if you have the English Standard Version or the NIV, it's not in your Bible. Take a look at it. Matthew chapter 6, verse 13. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Oh, verse 14. If you forgive us, what happened to the doxology? What, what, what happened? And there's a little footnote in my Bible that says, some manuscripts add, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. What does that mean? Why is it not in, our, in the text of our, our Bibles? Is, is it okay to pray? Where, where did it come from? Why did they leave it out? I grew up in, in little towns in um, Oklahoma, born in West Texas, and, and in uh, some time in California. And uh, back in the days where I was growing up, believe it or not, every day in school we said the Pledge of Allegiance and the Lord's Prayer. Any, any old-timers here ever do that? It's crazy to think that that happens today, but we would, we would do it. And everybody said it differently. The Lutherans said forever and ever. The Catholics ended with deliver us from evil. And the rest of us said for years is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. And as the fourth grader, I got into theological arguments with my Catholic buddies. <laughs> What's the matter? Don't you know the Lord's Prayer? Can we teach you how to pray the Lord's Prayer? And I'm just grateful none of these newer translations were available then because I'd have to apologize to my Catholic buddies and Lutheran buddies and others because it's, it's not here. So should we pray it? Should we not? Okay. Look at that footnote. It says, some manuscripts, 
we're told that there are some 5,800 handwritten manuscripts of the New Testament. We don't have the original papyrus that Matthew wrote when he put down the Lord's Prayer. We, we don't, what we have is a copy of a copy of a copy. And by comparing all of those different manuscripts, we can kind of come to a, an accurate text of what was actually written. And there are two schools of thought. There are some who believe that you give priority to the earliest possible manuscripts. And those earliest manuscripts that we have don't include this. So people think, well, that's, that's, the, that's the accurate text. There's another school of thought that says, no, you, you go with the agreement that the most of the manuscripts have. And most of them agree that, that this is the right way to, to end it. Thine's the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. The ESV gives weight to the oldest manuscripts. That's why the phrase, your kingdom, power, and glory is not there. The, the King James Version, if you've got the New King James Version, it gives weight to what's, what's the agreement. So which is it? Well, British scholar N.T. Wright, and by the way, a good number of other scholars say this. This concluding doxology was already well established within a century or so of Jesus' day, and it's actually inconceivable within the Jewish praying styles of his day that Jesus would have intended the prayer to stop simply with deliver us from evil. Something like this doxology must have been intended from the beginning. In any case, it chimes exactly with the message of the prayer as a whole. God's kingdom, God's power, God's glory are what it's all about. So let me just say this, friends. God's never going to get angry at you for praying yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. He said, well, where did it come from? Well, 1 Chronicles 29, 11 says this. David is has accumulated wealth to build the temple. He's not going to be allowed to do it. He's providing the resources for his son, and he prays, and he says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that's in the heavens and earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you're exalted as head over all. Did you catch those words? Kingdom, power, glory. Now, let me tell you why all this matters ask you a question. What's the greatest temptation in your life right now? What's the biggest struggle you have? Some of us would say anxiety. Some of us would say discouragement. Some of us would say anger. Some of us would say lust. Some of us would say selfishness or stinginess or I've made an idol of comfort. And I want to suggest all those struggles are secondary. That the greatest struggle we have, the struggle most of us have, is the temptation to live for this moment, this very moment. Why does anger consume us? Why do we give in to lust? Why, we're, why are we prone to discouragement? Because we're tempted to live in this present moment. And that's so we feel anger right now. Or we feel lust right now. We feel discouraged right now. And we don't have a long-term vision for our life. And that's where the Lord's Prayer helps us. Because it helps like Wayne said about Mount Rainier, it helps us to lift our eyes from this present moment to something far beyond us. In fact, it confronts us with three questions. What kingdom are you living for? What power are you living by? And what glory, who, what glory whose glory will you seek? Yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. So what kingdom are you going to live for? What power are you going to live by? And 
Whose glory are you going to live for? Those are the questions I believe the Holy Spirit is asking every one of us today. So let's take them one at a time for a moment. Whose kingdom will you live for? Yours is the kingdom, we pray. Yours is the kingdom. And when we pray that, it's a statement of surrender. It's saying, I'm living for your kingdom, your purposes that matter. You're the boss. You're in charge. And a good way of understanding what it means to pray, thine is the kingdom, is to ask, what's the opposite of that? Help me out here. What's the opposite of saying, thine is the kingdom? Mine is the kingdom. Wherever I have control. So here's a common conversation in homes. I had it with my kids, teenagers at home. Let's get one thing straight. It's my house. As long as you live in my house, under my roof, you'll abide by my rules. Anyone ever said that? Anyone ever heard that? We're really saying, this is my kingdom. It's where I'm in control. And the teenager goes to his room and says, it's my room. And in my room, I ought to be able to do what I want. I ought to be in charge. It's only 100 square feet of space, but it's my kingdom. And a lot of people spend all of their life building their little kingdom where they're in control, in charge, trying to show everybody around them that it's theirs. I walk in the room, walk in the door after a hard day of work, and my house shoes are laid out by the lazy boy. My iced tea is ready. The remote's by the chair. Dinner's on the stove. What's being said? I'm thinking it's not my house. <laughs> not my kingdom. That's somebody else's kingdom. My grandkids are absorbed with Space Jam. It's this, it's this story, LeBron James is, is in it. It's not the first Space Jam. Uh, back in the late 90s, there was another base, uh, Space Jam, and uh, Michael Jordan was the star of it. Because at that time... The NBA was Michael's kingdom. It was all about Michael. He ruled. Now it's LeBron James' kingdom. The NBA, you listen to any of the sports center stuff, it's all about LeBron. What's LeBron doing? What's LeBron think? It's worth a billion dollars, we're told now. Someday, some other guy is going to come in, and LeBron's going to get old just like Michael. And the NBA is going to be somebody else's kingdom. You say, what's your point, Sam? The point is this. Whatever kingdom you're building, it's going to topple someday. It's going to fall. It's always going to be your kingdom. And you, want to, you want to have a kingdom that's not going to topple and fall. And when you pray, thine is the kingdom, yours is the kingdom, you're saying, you're the boss, I'm living for your purposes, it's all about you, not all about me. So what kingdom are you living for? Second question. What power will you live by? Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. You know the greatest question, the greatest struggle that I see in modern day Christianity is we are trying to walk with Jesus under our own power. You know, we're doing the best we can. We are white knuckling it. We're doing the best we can to walk with Jesus under our, our own power. And that was never his intent. 
that and when we pray, yours is the power. We are saying, I want to live by your power, by your strength. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever wondered, have you ever wanted to have lived in the days of Jesus? You ever thought, if I had only been there and watched those miracles, heard that teaching, if I had only seen the risen Christ, if I had only, I would never doubt again. I would, I would be full of energy. I wouldn't care what other people thought if I could only have lived in the days of Jesus. Well, listen to what Jesus told his disciples just before he entered heaven in the ascension. He said in Luke 24, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning with Jerusalem, from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Jesus says to the people who saw him risen, who saw the miracles, don't do anything. Wait. Don't go anywhere. Wait. Why? Because they did not yet have the power. First, Second Peter one twenty one says, "No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit." And that speaks primarily and principally of the writing of Scripture. And that's not being done anymore. But that idea of being carried along by the Spirit is a current, present-day reality. When was the last time you felt carried along by the Holy Spirit? When was the last time you felt empowered or emboldened, filled with, led by the Holy Spirit? We don't have to wait. He's been given in our salvation. But we can be carried along by the Holy Spirit. And here's the secret. The Christian life is impossible to live by your own power because it's a supernatural life and you need supernatural power to live it. So when I pray, thine is the kingdom, it's all about you. It's, you're the boss. You're in charge. And thine is the power I'm inviting. God, would you fill me with your power? Fill me with your spirit because I can't love my neighbor as myself. I can't love my family as I should. I can't serve you. I can't bear bold witness in the, in the, the workplace unless you give me the strength and the power. It's an invitation to seek power from the Lord. Receive it. Yours is the kingdom. Who's, whose kingdom are you living for? Yours is the, the, glory, the, the power. Whose power are you living by? Yours is the glory. Whose glory will you seek? Whose fame? And one way to understand that is says, what's the opposite of thine is the glory? Mine is the glory. It's, a, it's nice to be admired. It's nice to be congratulated and appreciated. We all want to be honored. We all want to be complimented. We love to display our honors. We we put up trophy cases in the den. We hang certificates of appreciation. We, we scrapbook uh, newspaper clippings. We're all glory seekers. We're all thirsty for glory. And some of us want the spotlight. Some of us aren't comfortable with the spotlight. We want to work behind the scenes. But everybody wants glory to be appreciated. The question is, when you're not, 
when your service is not honored, not seen, not recognized, not affirmed, what goes on inside of you? How do you feel? Just a little resentful. Just a little upset. I'm not saying human affirmation is not important. It, it is important. We're told in Scripture to honor one another. But the glory, how, how would we feel if nobody sees what we do but Jesus? And someday we'll hear, well done from him. Whose glory are you seeking? It's an invitation to lay down my reputation and my need for approval and, my, my, and reorient myself around seeking an audience of one. Approval from one. Thine is the kingdom. Thine is the power. Thine is the glory. Whose kingdom are you living for? What power are you living by? Whose praise will you seek? And every time you pray, those three questions are there. It'd be really good if those could be settled once and for all. If right now I could just say, okay, Lord, you're the boss. I want to live by your power. Live for your glory. And it was settled. No more struggles. The only problem, it doesn't happen like that, does it? Because I've got to get up in the morning. This is a prayer that's not only decisive, it's a daily prayer. I've got to pray it every day because I've got to wake up and I've got to face the struggles once again. So the surrender has to happen daily. That's, yes, we have to come to the point where we say, Lord, my life is yours. I trust Jesus as my Savior and my Lord. I submit myself to his lordship. And we become new creatures in Christ. But at the same time, it's got to be a daily sort of a thing where we surrender. Those 11 words, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, are an invitation to surrender daily to Jesus Christ. And they're a challenge. They're a challenge to whose kingdom we're living for. Whose kingdom are you living for? They're, they challenge us with whose strength are you living by? What kind of power are you living by? Self-will? Willpower? Doesn't work. And whose glory will you seek? And it's an encouragement because our praying this does not make Jesus the head of the kingdom, the giver of power, and the receiver of glory. It's already his. We're acknowledging what's already true. So that's an encouragement. We're not ratifying the kingship of Jesus when we pray this. We're just recognizing and acknowledging it is already true and it's a prophetic thing to say. You're uttering prophecy in a sense. Jesus walked this earth, the most glorious human being who ever lived. He taught about the kingdom of God. He used power to demonstrate the kingdom of God. The disciples said, we build his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father. Then he became obedient even unto death on a cross. Not the end of the story. It's not the end of kingdom and power and glory because God exalted him to the highest place, gave him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, what happens? Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth, yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the glory forever. So picture this scene, picture this scene. Every creature who has ever lived from Adam until now will bow in acknowledgement of the supremacy 
his kingdom, his power, and his glory. Every president who has ever lived, every CEO who's ever led a company, every singer, every artist, every movie star, every billionaire will be on bended knees. Their tongues will confess. People we read about, people we'll see on TV, whatever their current beliefs are, will bow the knee. Oprah will bow the knee to Jesus. Tiger Woods will bow the knee to Jesus. The Dalai Lama will bow the knee to Jesus. Jeff Bezos, not only will go up in space, but he will bow the knee to Jesus. Osama bin Laden, Lady Gaga will bow the knee to Jesus. Knees that don't do much bowing today, knees that never bow to anyone, will bow in that day. Napoleon and Adolf Hitler will bend on that day. Joseph Stalin will bend the knee to Jesus. Caesar Augustus, who declared a census so that all the world will be taxed, and in one little obscure country halfway around the world, a little baby was born, he will bow the knee to that baby. Herod, who put out the word to kill that baby and killed a lot of other little boys, trying to kill that baby, run a sword through him, will bow the knee to Jesus. Pontius Pilate, who didn't want to do something wrong, but he didn't want to do what was right, will bow the knee to Jesus. All the characters we've read about, Pharaoh, Goliath, Jezebel, Judas Iscariot, they will bend the knee to Jesus. People who through this lifetime have bent the knee to Jesus will bow on that day. Tim Tebow will bow on that day. Jeremy Lynn, Moses, Abraham, Ruth, Esther, Paul, Peter, everybody you've ever known, the people who live next door to you, the person you're sitting next to, turn and look at them. Turn and look at the person next to you. They will bow the knee to Jesus. And the person you see in the mirror will bow the knee to Jesus and declare, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. And some people will bow resentfully and stiffly. And some people will bow in appreciation and joy and love at God's sheer goodness. But one way or another, that day is coming just like today came. When every knee will bow, Every tongue will confess there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And God has given him that knee, that name above every name. And at his name, we will bow and say, yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory. And here's where I want to get real personal for a moment. Have you bent the knee? Whose kingdom are you living for? What power are you living by? Whose glory are you craving? One last question. What kind of church produces people like this? What kind of church produces people who live under the authority of the King of Heaven, who seek to live under a power that is not theirs and who live for only one person's praise, for only one well done. What kind of church produces people like this? Is this church? Do you? Your elders have invited me to come and speak to you and help lead a process that under God will help you to more effectively become a church that makes disciples and produces people like this. I've noticed some things happen when pastors leave churches. 
staff leader, you guys have been through a tri double, triple whammy. I've noticed that churches respond in several ways during a time of transition, and you're in a time of transition. Some churches go into a holding pattern, just kind of tread water. Some churches divide into factions, and there's this power vacuum. Some churches see it as a time to save money. Some churches fail to recognize and deal with some issues that they have. Some churches call a pastor just as soon as possible and then live with the consequences of the wrong pastor coming. And I believe, I believe in the local church so much that when I retired in January, I said I want to give the rest of my life to helping churches, strengthen churches to become as effective disciple-making organisms God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, Holy Spirit-dependent churches that possibly can be. So I'm a part of an organization that is committed to doing that. It's called Interim Pastor Ministries. And we use a five-step process. Let's so just look at on the screen for a moment. And if, if we do this here, we'll walk through a process. It's intentional. I'll spend several months just meeting as many people in the church as I possibly can. Just be an objective to hear what's in your heart. What do you see in the church? And I'll put together a transition team of some leaders in your church, both men and women, who will work with me and I'll work with them to guide this process. We'll assess how healthy is the church. We'll use a number of instruments to ask, what are the strengths of this church and what are the weaknesses of this church? And what opportunities has God given this church and what's stopping the, uh, this church? And then we'll, we'll bring a report with some recommendations. Here's what, we, here's what we are recommending. The transition team will recommend this is what we believe needs to happen in our church. And a decision will be made. You'll all hear the report. Decision will be made according to your polity. What are we going to do? We're just going to put it on a shelf? And if the decision is we're going to follow these recommendations and we're going to go th through this process then we will enter in time of, a, a time of strategic planning and the transition team will answer the questions, help us to answer the questions, who are we as a church? And where do we want to go as a church? And how do we get there? Mission, vision, core values, strategy, and that transition team will work to develop all of that. And you'll be a part of that. And last of all, Sometime during the process, I'll help coach as best I can a pastor search team that you already have in place to go look for someone who fits you, who, who's, who knows your culture and wants to be a part of your culture and lead you in the God-given mission. God's given the elders, the deacons, and the trustees here in the entire church so that the pastor fits you. A few years ago, I was riding in the car with my mom, and uh, we had just come back. We'd been airlifted out of the Dominican Republic after this horrible accident. And accident. And I was wearing this neck brace and had four fractures, and all of our families beat up really badly. I was riding with my mom, and I started talking to her about the kind of church I wanted to be a part of. I said, I just want, Mom, I just... I just want to be a church, be a part of a church where people are real and they're, 
they're free to confess their faults and their sins to one another, and they pray for each other that they will be healed, and where people are just honest with each other. And, and I want to be a part of a church where people are learn how to go from just being a brand new Christian to be a mature disciple. And I want to be a part of a church that loves God's word so much they actually do what it says. I want to be a part of the church that when you drive in the parking lot, you feel the power of the Holy Spirit and you come in and lives literally, not just talk, literally are being changed. And I want to be a part of a church that people around the community are saying, thank God there's a church like that in our community. We need them. I'm so glad they're here. My mom said that church does not exist. And I said, did once. It has to. It has to. What is the dream in your heart for this church? What kind of church have you always wanted to be a part of? I just wonder if God wouldn't plant that same dream in many, many of us. When we begin to see a God-given dream by his power, for his glory, and advance the kingdom of God. Would you pray with me, please? Let's pray. Lord, my heart beats fast when I think of a church like Acts 2 or Acts 4, a church like Antioch, my heart just beats fast. Thank you for the good work and the years of faithfulness, your faithfulness in the life of Fellowship Bible in Longview. The stories that can be told, lives that have been changed, marriages that have been rescued, kids who have grown up to love you, kids who have returned to you, missionaries who have been sent out, received back, God's stories that have been told and continue to be told, thank you for that. Would you guide us together? Would you speak clearly? Would you call forth what you've placed in this church for your glory, by your power, to advance your kingdom in this area, and not only here, but around the world? And Lord, I ask, would you cause it to be that there are people in the hardest places on the planet who at the end of time will be around the throne of Jesus calling him Lord because of the influence of this church in this area. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.